Previously, in the Elendred. Elandra decides she can no longer personally protect Penelope. After getting Jonathan's message about the Aphrodite facility in Yokaido, she tells Penelope that she will leave her and Henry on Tyr. On Freya, Gabriel confronts John, the father of the man he has killed, and attempts to explain his actions. After a physical confrontation, Gabriel gets the upper hand. John, emotionally exhausted and beaten, tells his men to let Gabriel go. Gabriel then departs for Tyr. In their cell, Norell and Bridget discuss their prospects. Bridget begins to break down in despair, but her attention is seized unexpectedly by Norell. Norell tells Bridget the story of how she lost her leg and her squad partner during a botched summoning in Afghanistan. Elsewhere on Tyr, we meet Rosalind, the android who attacked Archmage Bohemir. Rosalind attempts to summon a band to kill her husband, who suffers from an aggressive degenerative illness. Her summoning fails, and she resolves to return to Halsper and kidnap Norell. As Rosalind, Alondra, Penelope, and Safia converge on the Republic building of Halsper, where Norell and Bridget are imprisoned, Yusuf smashes a clay pot of ash inside as an act of protest. Safia arrives too late to stop her brother. The act of destroying the urn summons an enormous, shadowy ban that begins to destroy the Republic building from within. Outside, Rosalind watches the decimation unfold next to Kamar. Kamar turns to Rosalind and tells her that she, Kamar, is responsible for the summoning. All right, that's it. Hi, my name is Thomas, and I am going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode five. So if you aren't caught up, I'd recommend pausing here and starting from the beginning. Also, since this is an original story with many characters, it may not be in their best interest to listen while you work, or while reading articles or arguing with strangers online. In fact, the best way to listen to this episode would be at the top of a fire tower in some strange wilderness, watching smoke rise in the distance but it's ultimately up to you. We're sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's a little after 7.30 p.m. There is no music. There are no sound effects. But if you like, you can imagine that we are sitting around a low-burning fire on the coast of Greece. You can faintly hear the crackling of the fire, the crashing of waves on a dark shore, and a distant hum of wind through the olive groves. But that's it. This is the Elendred. Henry is wearing one of Alondra's sweaters. It's a fluffy, mint green and down gray pullover that's only slightly too big for him, and only not quite warm enough for the cold mist of Halsburr. Next to Henry, Penelope walks, mercifully unrecognizable in the heavy brown soldier's coat. And then Alondra, 
in a white winter thermal and gloves under her signature yellow jacket. You could find good work as a mage for hire, she sang to Penelope. Your conjuries are quite strong, especially if you get some training in integrated sorcery and, and superphysical components. I mean, you could earn 700 a week just enchanting gravity pads. Alondra stops suddenly, consults her armlet, and turns to Penelope. We probably shouldn't get any closer than this. I, I think that's the Republic building. She points at a tall glass dome that rises just above the buildings ahead and squints against the brightness of the sun and the bitter wind, thinking they couldn't have picked a better day to be on the run. No one had spared them so much as a first look, let alone a second. Penelope takes a deep breath. Well? Alondra nods, not quite meeting Penelope's eyes. Yeah. Thank you for everything. Don't mention it. An awkward, tense moment follows. Alondra opens her mouth as if to say something, then closes it again. And Penelope frowns at her, searching for what it might have been. A siren sounds in the distance, and somewhere a man yells indistinctly. Good luck, Alondra says, finally. Thanks. Penelope smiles thinly. Penelope? Henry points towards the Republic building. Ar Ar Arcanist? The two women turn to look. The siren has been joined by another, and another, and from beneath the sirens another sound is growing, the sound of screaming. Something is moving beneath the glass dome of the Republic building. They watch as the dome suddenly buckles upward, then disintegrates into a runoff of wreckage that pours down and out of sight as an amorphous black shape heaves itself from it. Alondra wheels on Penelope. Stay here, she says, and takes off running. Penelope turns to Henry. Please do stay here. I won't be able to find you if you don't, she says, then goes sprinting after Alondra. Henry clutches Alondra's sweater around himself then helplessly sits down on the nearest stoop. Norel hears the commotion first. Being an architect of catastrophe herself has made her sensitive to the sound of screams, and she gets up suddenly and moves to the door. What is it? Bridget gets up too. No. Norel starts banging on the door. Hey! Hey! Let us out of here! The yelling is getting louder, and somewhere there's a great crack, followed by a series of crashing sounds and the clatter of automatic gunfire. Oh, we've really done it now, Norelle murmurs to herself. What? Who's we? Bridget paces from one side of the cell to the other. What the hell is going on out there? The ground shakes beneath their feet so violently that Bridget falls hard against the wall and an unearthly sound echoes around them, an alien howl put through a white noise filter. Norell looks hard at Bridget. Listen, that injunction I put on you will last another day at least, so if you want to get out of here alive, you have to do exactly as I say, immediately, with no questions asked. Understood? Bridget looks up at Norell, the blood draining from her cheeks. 
eyes wide. She nods. Norelle nods too. Okay. She turns to the door. Now you're going to see some real fucking magic. As Alondra approaches the Republic building, she yells to those fleeing past her. Hey, was anyone inside? Did you see the summoning circle? The most she gets is panicked looks. As she rounds the street corner onto Alaskan Avenue, a squad of military and emergency vehicles overtake her. Ma'am. Ma'am. A soldier leaps from his truck and blocks Alondra's path. You do not want to be here right now. Alondra flashes her badge. Alondra Ramirez, first arcanist. I need you to form a perimeter around the Republic building, and I need a CNR. The man looks stunned, but he fumbles in his pack and hands her a handheld radio. Yes, ma'am. I mean, uh, yes, arcanist. Alondra takes it and grabs the man's shoulder. I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to go find someone who does. We will need spellcasters stationed around the perimeter. That I do know. At least five. So find me two other competent magicians. That thing is going to get a whole lot more mobile when it's done growing. The bayon makes a sound. The first sound they've heard it make. And it sends a shudder through the ground and down their spines like a ripple on the water. The soldier looks up at the black mass gathering ahead of them. When it's done growing? Alondra doesn't seem to be listening. She just stares up at the bayon, breathing hard. Yeah, at least five, she says to herself, then takes off running down the street again, dodging far-flung chunks of masonry and rubble. The soldier turns back to his platoon. Someone get me the major. We need to get M.K. Johns and M.K. Aubert in position. Let's go. In the hall of the Regency Wing, the cell door explodes from its hinges and hits the opposite wall with a clang. It slides to the ground amid the wailing of an alarm. From within the cell, a flickering light emits, casting shadows around Bridget as she stumbles into the hallway. She is followed by Norell, whose skin appears to burn with a soft glow as she chants Jordamain, her fingers latticed before her in a sign of protection. The bayon screams again as Norelle drops her fingers, the flames in her eyes subsiding. Where is it? Bridget hisses. Norelle narrows her eyes. It's near the main atrium. We're in the east wing. Come on. They run down the hall, emerging through a door at the other end to find the office in a state of panic. An overweight young man shivers in the corner, visibly sweating, while an older gentleman in an unbuttoned coat picks a large computer up off a nearby desk and heaves it through the nearest high-glass window. As Norell enters the room, several officers lift their sidearms. Royaker slingshots, the 330 model, Norell notes. Even the Regency Armory was starving out here, it seemed. Stop where you are, ma'am, one of the ROs yells. Norell practically snarls at him. Sergeant is the word you're looking for, and you have bigger problems than me. Where the hell is Captain Carrick? He... The RO hesitates. He's in Galen's lock. For fuck's sake. Who's the next ranking magician? The guards look around the room. Finally, the fat man in the corner raises his hand, trembling, then winces as another alien scream echoes through the room, 
followed by an uncomfortably close splintering sound. Norell turns her eyes upward. Jesus, okay, everyone else, out that window. Bridget, help them. As the other ROs beeline for the exit, Norell kneels in front of the shaking officer. Sir, what's your name? Fowler, Lieutenant Fowler. The man looks to be in his late thirties, with a broad, lined face. Fowler, Norell repeats. Okay, Lieutenant Fowler, do you know who I am? The man nods. Then you know I'm the best chance this city has right now. Moments later, Fowler is punching his security code into the black cabinet. Black cabinets started as a joke on people's fear-mongering superstitions, but it evolved into common parlance. It meant the secure storage where you kept your enchanted boots, protective amulets, etc. The magic stuff you wouldn't want to fall into the wrong hands. As the keypad beeps and turns green, Norell hurriedly throws open the door, scans the interior, and unceremoniously begins removing long metal rods, like four-foot-long tent spikes with bands of copper around them, and throwing them onto the floor. Are there any more of these? She jabs her finger at the staves. Fowler shakes his head. Just, just five. It's a standard set. Bridget paces over and wrinkles her nose. What are they? Wording staves. Nurel picks up two and frowns at Bridget. Go through the window and I'll pass them to you. With a crash, a dark, viscous mass breaks through the wall on the far side of the room, sending liquid shadows spilling over the floor and crawling towards them. Nurel's eyes widen. Go, go, go! Bridget clambers out of the window, her head filling with an unpleasant, buzzing sensation. Norell and Fowler hurry across the room with the staves. The dark mass of the bayon seems to be carrying its environment with it. As the tentacle that destroyed the far wall slides out of sight, the broken beams and crumbling drywall are coated in a living darkness that spreads rapidly. The last of the staves pass through, and with a practiced economy, Norell places her left foot, the good one, on the filing cabinet below the window. She leans forward and leaps through with a grunt. The lieutenant scrambles after her, but has trouble pulling himself up over the sill. Norell picks up three of the staves and looks up to the collapsing structure, then down at the crowds fleeing from the main atrium to the west. Come on, let's go. Bridget looks between her and the struggling officer. What? Either he makes it or he doesn't. Now come on. The man is crying and wheezing, trying and failing to pull himself up, as the black, oozing matter spreads like acid over the desks behind him. Bridget places her hands on the window ledge and vaults back into the building, ignoring Norell's shouts. She kneels, cups her hands, and waits as Fowler's panicked foot kicks at her hand, once, twice, three times before finally finding purchase. It's enough. A moment later, the officer is falling forward onto the brittle grass. Bridget places her hand on the sill, just as the seeking tendrils of shadows creep across it. She screams in pain. It feels like a shard of ice through her palm. She resists the temptation to pull her hand away, tenses her muscles, and throws herself up and over the ledge, sprawling out next to Fowler and the staves. But the pain continues. 
She screams and pulls off her leather jacket. It's cold outside, but she feels like her arm is burning off. She hears Norel curse, then a series of Latin words, and looks down to see the shadow snaking up her forearm from the palm of her hand, like ink just below the surface of her skin. And the pain is just getting worse. We, we, we have to cut it off before it gets to her neck. Fowler is clutching his head with both hands, his feet shuffling backwards. Norell interrupts her Jordamain to reach back and grab his arm. Adonar's siphon, she yells. Now! Fowler nods and reciprocates her grasp with a Roman handshake. He speaks a phrase of Engelman, and Norell's grip tightens around his arm as power flows from him to her. She lurches forward, clamps her other hand around Bridget's arm just below the shoulder, directly over the questing tip of shadow, and gritting her teeth against the pain, she speaks one last Latin phrase, then screws up her eyes as the heat beneath her palm intensifies, and Bridget's cries are suspended in a single, drawn-out scream. It pierces the dull cacophony of panic and collapsing masonry. A short distance away, Alondra's head whips to look towards the sound. She begins to run towards it, then zags left to pull a woman from a burning car. The vehicle has been partially crushed by a large slab of concrete, and the woman's leg has been broken. Alondra drags her a few yards. There's no such thing as a safe distance right now. Then rushes on, yelling the woman's location into her hand radio. She crests the hill and sees Norell and Fowler dragging Bridget's twitching body away from the building, hampered by the five warding staves. Norell is so shocked to see her, she drops Bridget's arm, causing Fowler to nearly trip over himself. What the fuck are you doing here? Norell shouts. Alondra gasps for breath. <sighs> Checking on you. Thank the light you made it out. Norell jerks her head towards Bridget. Give us a hand? Alondra looks up at what's left of the Republic building. There isn't much. The last wall of the Regency wing crumbles in front of them, giving way to inky blackness. Norell, we don't have time. Let's go, Norell hisses. Bridget's still only semi-conscious. Alondra and Fowler hoist her onto their shoulders and drag her upright, her feet trailing in the grass. Alondra knows better than to waste her time asking Norell what happened to her. The four of them move quickly down the slope towards the main road. But before they reach it, Norell stops suddenly and drives one of her staves into the ground. Here. Gather them all here. Alondra shoots a panicked look back at the building. Here? These need to go to the perimeter for, 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 for the area binding. Norell shakes her head. No, you are right. There's no time for that. You... Alondra stumbles over her words as she tries to recall what little she knows of beyonding. Are, are we doing an, an offset binding? She asks. Norell snorts. Have you seen that thing? No, we're going to create a calyx beacon. It's like an invisible fence that keeps the bayon in one place while we bind it. Is that difficult? Alondra asks. Yes, immensely, but it gives us a chance to escape. Norell drives the remaining staves into the ground and does some quick mental arithmetic. Only problem is, we need eight hands to connect all five staves, so we might be fucked. 
Bridget struggles to a sitting position, her left arm flopping weakly against the ground. I, I can help, she says hoarsely. I can help. No, you can't. Nurel doesn't look at her when she says it. That injunction on you is still fresh, and besides, we don't know what that Bayon did to you. She looks at Alondra. Any ideas? Someone clears their throat behind Alondra, and the group turns as Penelope shimmers into view, her fingers pressed to the arcane mark on the lapel of her duster. Hi, she says. Norell's eyes flick to Alondra's, then towards Fowler, who is gaping at Penelope. Is that... Fowler begins, before Norell cuts him off. Shut up and take hold of these. Fowler, Alondra, Penelope, and Norell each wrap their hands around two of the staves, forming a connection from the first to the last. Bridget, propped up on her arms, feels something curl in her stomach as she watches them. For a second, it feels like the Bayan's shadow in her again. But no, it's an altogether human feeling, though she can't quite place it. It's like she's suddenly outside of her body, watching the events unfold before her like a NetVision ad. She watches as Norell begins to speak the Calyx beacon into existence. She watches as arcs of blue light spark across their arms, gathering in the space between the five staves in a neon fog. The incantation is long and complicated. Bridget doesn't know much Engelman, but setting up verbal boundaries was a lengthy process in any lexicon. She turns her head and watches the Bayon pull a media drone out of the sky. That will make for some exciting net vision. She feels hands grasp her arms and turns her head back to see Alondra pulling her to her feet. What's happening? She asks, feeling very stupid as she says it. We're running, Alondra says, kindly. And they are. They fly across the empty roadway, then round a corner to enter some kind of improvised military safe point. A practicing officer stands there, chanting over a warding stave of his own. Norell delivers a series of quick-paced orders that fly over Bridget's head, and she watches as Norell and Fowler commandeer a military vehicle, and Penelope reactivates her duster and shimmers out of sight. Alondra kneels down next to Bridget again, who is somehow sitting. She says, You'll be okay. Stay here. And Bridget, knowing how far from the truth that was, watches as Alondra jumps on the back of an army autobike and whirs out of sight. She notices that no one seems to be paying much attention to her. For now. She was just another survivor, after all. But how long would that last? She wobbles to her feet, flexes her left arm, and winces. Then, looking straight ahead so as to look like she knows what she's doing, she paces away. M.K. Johns turns out to be a middle-aged magician with thinning gray hair, who seems to be under the impression that he should be preparing to fight the Bayon with conjured lightning or a flaming sword. Alondra shows him the binding mantra on his armlet, reassuring him that Norell will do most of the work. He just needs to channel through the warding stave till someone gives him the all-clear. At least, she's pretty sure that's how it works. As she remounts the borrowed autobike and heads for the fifth binding point, she finds herself wishing that Lakiri had taught her at least basic theurgy. 
But no. Lakiri was deeply opposed to the practice, and everything Alondra knew of Beyonding was from books and theoretical white papers. Summoning is a bad business, Lakiri had said. The stars must work in darkness, but they should never become it. Alondra arrives at the binding point and dismounts. She flashes her badge to the army officers there and approaches her new stave. While the Regency ones had been dyed black and banded with copper, colonial defenses staves were plain steel. Alondra wasn't sure if it made any difference. A young woman salutes awkwardly as Alondra approaches. She has tight dreadlocks pulled back into a bun, and her uniform bears white lapels instead of the purple sported by the MKs. Mage Squire Iris Paulson, she says. How can I assist you? Alondra glances at the ban, which is thrashing about the south side of the perimeter. At ease. I'm not defense. Iris seems surprised and awkwardly shifts her shoulders. It's an honor to meet you. Thanks. Alondra pulls up the binding mantra on her armlet and scans. You know a siphoning transfer? Iris nods. Alondra inspects the stave and gives a thumbs up to the nearby soldiers. Good. Hopefully I won't need it, but be ready if I yell. And pull up the binding mantra, just in case. She lifts her CNR and says, Ramirez here. Ready. The two MKs and Fowler also sound off. Norell's voice crackles through the other end. All right. Please make sure you have the Jordamain area binding pulled up. We are not using the Engelman version. Also, we finally got the security footage sent to us, and the summoning circle had seven points. So add two additional repetitions at the end of each binding and forbidden strophe. It begins. More chanting. And Alondra feels the draining effects of the ritual, pulling magic from her words and through her hands into the stave. Alondra's not sure how far they've got, at least halfway, she thinks, when there is a distant bang, and a yellow beam of light shoots into the sky to the south. It must be the calyx beacon giving out, because suddenly, the black shape of the bayon roils towards them, back towards the wreckage of the Republic building. Alondra's grip tightens on the stave as she looks from her armlet to the approaching darkness, then back to her armlet, then up again. Is that? Iris speaks aloud what Alondra is thinking. How the fuck did they survive? Two figures, their wool coats gusting about them, are making their way up the street towards Alondra and the military outpost. One of them seems to be trying to conjure a protection spell of some kind, but it's fading fast and only flickers to life every few seconds. Alondra turns to Iris. Can you take over for me? What? Iris shoots her a panicked look. Can you do it? Iris nods, and Alondra cedes her position to her and runs towards the approaching figures. The bayon is barreling towards them. She wonders if it somehow knows that it left too alive. The survivors are Middle Eastern and wearing traditional clothes beneath their winter coats. One of them, male, is wounded, but there's no point in trying to help them back to the binding point. For all its size, the bayon is crawling towards them with an unholy speed, obliterating everything in its path. 
Alondra seizes onto the broken pieces of the protection spell, and with a cry, she weaves them into a bright green shield of light that shines in a great crescent from one side of the street to the other as the bayon comes crashing down on them. It hits the shield with a flash of light and an explosive, deafening boom. The shield is immediately broken, whatever scraps of it remain fizzling into nothing, and an overwhelming wave of exhaustion hits Alondra in the same moment. The bayon recoils, then, with a roar, it sends a flurry of tentacles rushing towards them again. Alondra, her arms shaking, pulls another shield into the air, this one a faint and desperate parody of the first. But the concussive blast doesn't come. The attack dissolves in the air, and the bayon's howl grows suddenly shrill and faint as it phases transparent, then begins to shrink and shrivel, pulling into itself with a tinny sound like a kettle whistling in a faraway room. Before Alondra can quite process what's happening, it is simply gone. Alondra falls to her knees on the pavement. Soldiers' boots fall heavy and fast around her, and the survivors are pulled roughly to their feet and handcuffed. What are you doing? Alondra wonders, vaguely. That's the summoner, Iris says, helping Alondra up. He's in the video. That's the guy who did this. Alondra watches them get dragged away. What? She says. She's suddenly aware of how cold she is. Heavy flakes of snow are falling all around them, blanketing the scene of carnage with a veneer of white. Shivering, she pulls her jacket tight around her. Iris throws a blanket over her shoulders, and Alondra sighs gratefully. Teeth chattering slightly, she says, Penelope? Then stops herself. Penelope? Iris asks. Alondra turns slowly, looking all around her. Penelope, as is generally the case with the invisible, is nowhere to be seen. Bridget walks for a while before she finds a diner that wasn't hastily closed or abandoned. She pushes her way in and walks over to the bar, where everyone sits or stands, transfixed by the net vision loop in silence. After a minute of shifting awkwardly on her feet, she finally interjects, uh, Can I get a coffee? The man behind the counter pours her a mug and sets it down in front of her. He barely seems to register her presence. Can I borrow a handset, too? Bridget adds. Her armlet had been confiscated after the arrest. The man fishes in his pocket and pushes his device across the counter to her. She takes it, along with her mug of coffee, and slides into a booth. She grimaces through her first sip of the synthetic brew. She checks Galacticat first, a microblogging and discussion service that showed trend pools across the republics. Halsper is the number one keyword in every USSA system, except Seoul. There, it's number two, after the tag Sunsword 4, which is a movie nobody seems to like. She dives into the Halsper tag and scans the discussion threads. 
There's the expected slew of thoughts and prayers, a general fervent outcry against terrorism, and a not insignificant group of self-assured idiots linking it to Bohemir and implicating Norell by extension. There aren't any conclusive reports yet, but Halsper Emergency Response is estimating casualties in the low hundreds based on surveillance. She logs into her Polero account and scrolls through people's photos of the van, of the destruction and carnage. She starts to feel a little sick, drains the rest of her coffee, then snaps a picture of the winding black mark that stretches from her palm and ends just below her shoulder. She posts it. New tat, W-Y-T. It's only a few seconds before someone comments. You got a tattoo while your disgraced warden set a bayon loose? Kill yourself, it reads, followed by a sexually explicit racial slur. Bridget smiles. The world hadn't changed too much after all. That's the last thing she thinks, before she feels a sharp sting in the back of her neck, and everything goes black. Gabriel pauses the video and kneads his forehead. He's sitting in a conference room at Ostland Station with Commander Christopher Cowell and Regency Captain James Carrick. It's several hours later. Cowell is Tyr's planetary rep, a middle-aged man with pitted eyes and the complexion of a gnarled tree trunk. Let's go over it again, Gabriel says slowly. Cowell and Carrick shoot each other looks of competing antitheses to enthusiasm. At approximately 1,300 hours house per time, Cowell begins, finally. Reclamation case 50HRA8 walked into the Republic building with a clay pot full of ash, soapboxed for 30 seconds, then smashed the urn. The urn's contents were enchanted to form a summoning circle. It brought forth a 120-foot-tall bayon, which the Arcane Standards Commission has named Ereshkigal. They're still working on a full classification. Ereshkigal destroyed the Republic building and most of the surrounding blocks before being banished. The banishing was completed about 25 minutes after the initial summoning, and was carried out by two Colony Defense MKs, a Regency Staff Magician, former SEAL Sergeant Beyonder Norell Peters, and, uh, <clears throat> the First Arcanist. Gabriel sits back in his chair and places his hands on the table in front of him, feeling the wood beneath his fingers, the strange weight of his resting palms. What about Lozano? Where is she? Cowell gnaws on his lip. We're not sure. The building lost power. We're missing surveillance just after she exited the Regency wing. And the android? Fowler claims it has activated invisibility and that it assisted in casting the Calyx Beacon. Gabriel raises his eyebrows. Where is it now? We're not sure, 
Cowell says, through gritted teeth. Gabriel rounds on Carrick. Where were you? Carrick, a small man with graying hair, drums his fingers on the table and watches Gabriel carefully. I was in Galen's lock, my lord, speaking with the Archmage. Gabriel leans forward. Did the Archmage have very many interesting things to say? He's... Carrick licks his lips nervously. He's in a lot of pain, my lord, and heavily sedated. However, we believe Sergeant Peters discovered him several hours after he was attacked, so it's unlikely that she... Obviously! Gabriel booms. Cowell and Carrick both shrink in their seats. Gabriel stands suddenly and begins to pace, rubbing his hands together and glowering. So, let's talk about Ramirez. Cowell nods grimly. Yes, he says. Soren, bring up all the media footage on the Arcanist. His cohort complies, and a slideshow of images and videos paired with headlines and Galacticat messages, shows up on the screen. There are several of these photos of her on the autobike, circulating at a rate of 50 new views per minute. Then there's the woman she pulled out of the car, as she's recorded a video thanking the Arcanist, and that's circulating at 70 new views per minute. And then there's this. The screen shows media drone footage of Alondra running towards the approaching Bayon, conjuring the great shield into the air, an arc of shimmering green light that intercepts the charging monster with an explosive blast. This is circulating at 180 new views per minute, with 87% positive association, despite us having pulled it from every major loop feed. Gabriel grips the back of the chair and narrows his eyes at the screen. It doesn't make any difference that she's saving the summoner, he asks. We've experimented with some spin bots targeting that fact, but it hasn't been very effective. Reduces the probability of sharing, but doesn't affect the overall opinion. The video plays on repeat, a ten-second refrain of Alondra running past the becoded figures casting the shield across the street, and being rocked back on her heels as the band strikes it. Carrick shakes his head slowly. Have you ever seen a single magician conjure a shield like that? He says, a little breathlessly. Yes, Gabriel responds tersely. What is the political mood like? I understand you have a serious revolutionary on your hands. Cowell makes a face. Tarek Longsend, and he's not a revolutionary, just a sheep in wolf's clothing. He and his gang of Luddites have organized a few raids. The Rocketburger thing last week, for example. What are his numbers like? There is another uncomfortable silence. 64% of mentions are positive, Cowell says. After factoring in spin bots. Gabriel furrows his brow at the screen. Carrick rubs his chin and looks anxiously from Cowell to Gabriel. What, what are you thinking, my lord? 
I'm thinking, Gabriel says, that you had better get a hold on Arcanist Ramirez before Tarek Longsend does. Gabriel shuts the door carefully behind him, eyeing Eris meaningfully. Eris smiles thinly. How'd it go? It's a mess. Gabriel shakes his head. I haven't been to tears since I was a child. I didn't realize the political climate had become so unstable. He rubs his hands together, thinking hard, then fixes his eyes on Eris. Any news from our side? Actually, yes. Sergeant Peters submitted a report. What? Gabriel is stunned. What does it say? She says Lozano was able to communicate with the Archmage by means of retinal projection, a sort of low-energy signaling method used by cheap hedge wizards. The Archmage indicated that... Well, I think you'd better read it. Eris hands Gabriel the blue envelope, and Gabriel hastily extracts the document and scans it. He looks up at Eris, his face grim. This is bad. Eris casts his eyes skyward, thinking. Could just be that an android did it makes a convenient patsy. How would Lozano have known about their bones? Gabriel paces down the hall, holding the envelope to his temple as if it were a poultice. Eris watches him, knowing better than to chase. I can start doing a demographic search on likely Aphrodite customers in the area. Gabriel shakes his head, pacing back towards Eris. No, we have to pull this up by the root. He hands the envelope back to Eris. I need you to start for Isa tonight, you and Bering. I'll make the arrangements with their regent. Eris nods. Then I suppose I should say goodbye. For now. Gabriel makes to embrace his lieutenant, but stops himself and clasps his hand instead. It's what? A fifteen-day slip? He says, placing his other hand on Eris's shoulder. I'll see you in a month. Norelle stretches her arms wide as she and Alondra exit Colonial Hall. The sun is setting, casting purple shadows across the snow-covered Grand Square. Jesus, she groans. How many times did they ask us how he got that summoning spell into the urn? Alondra turns a dubious smile in Norelle's direction. You're in a good mood. Norelle shrugs. Yesterday, all I had to look forward to was losing my practitioner's license. Today, I'm kind of a hero. Most people would call that a step up. You're not concerned about... Uh, sorry, what's her name? Norelle's face darkens. Brigetta. She made her choices. We all have to live with them. She pulls back her sleeve to consult her armlet and zips up her winter coat. How about that drink? You got my message, right? I mean, you're here, after all. If I knew that hitting on you inappropriately would actually work, I would have done it earlier. Alondra shakes her head. I should finish writing up my report on the Aphrodite androids. People seem to think they're out to destroy humanity. Someone has to be the voice of reason. Yeah. Narelle frowns and looks down the street. Lon, about that. How did he store the summoning in that urn, though? Alondra exclaims suddenly. I mean, where did he learn that? 
They're all grimaces. Well, she says, you can trigger a summoning off a certain condition, and some people carry pocket demons, inscribing the circle on an amulet or a small stone, but I don't know if anyone's ever enchanted an 80-foot circle to expand like that. Like I said inside, it's not really something we've seen before. Norelle exhales heavily and mutters. It must have taken her months. Her? Alanda frowns at Norelle. Norelle turns. Sorry, him. Anyway, I'm going to find a hotel. Bastards impounded my ship. She starts to go, but she turns back. Hey, I, uh, I didn't know how to tell you when we uh, first met, but thank you. When we met, Alondra is nonplussed. You don't have to thank me. I'm just glad I was here. No, not for... Narelle pauses and shoots an exasperated look at the darkening sky. I grew up in Virginia. I knew one of the girls who... She trails off. The square suddenly feels very quiet. Oh, says Alondra. She crosses her arms instinctively, her fingers coming to rest on the scar beneath her left rib. I always wanted to say thank you for taking him down. It just took me a couple years to get around to it. Nerell smiles thinly. Anyway, thanks. Alondra forces a smile in return. Yeah, well, you don't have to thank me. Whatever happened to him? Alondra shifts from one foot to the other. The Virginia Mason? Excoriated and imprisoned on Mars, last I heard. Good. Narell nods. Good. Yeah. Alondra says. You're way cooler than the last first Arcanist. Alondra laughs. All right, and we're back. Narelle smiles. I'll see you around, Alondra. Alondra watches her go. She shivers and surveys the square. People have really shut themselves in. There's almost no sign of life except for a solitary black van driving towards her. Directly towards her. Alondra double-checks her interference and basic deflections as the van slushes to a halt in front of her. The passenger door opens, and a man in a dark suit gets out. Arcanist Ramirez. Yes? The man opens another door to the vehicle. Commander Cowell and the consul would like to speak with you. Will you come with me? I haven't finished my report, Alondra protests. It's not about the android, the man says. Please. Get in. There didn't seem to be much of a choice. She steps into the vehicle. The agent presses a button, and the van's wheels spin for a moment before it jerks into motion. It drives off into the night. Bridget comes to in a dark space, for a moment wondering if she's back in her bunk on the Phantom. Brigetta Lozano, a voice says. Just Bridget, thanks, she says. Also, hi, 
You sound like those natural male enhancement ads that play on guys' net vision loops. A rich chuckle rolls across the space, which seems to be a large dome of some kind. No, not a dome. An ellipsoid or something, with dark tunnels leading off of it. Bridget is sitting in a remarkably comfortable armchair on a platform of some kind. A man with the darkest skin she's ever seen is kneeling about ten feet from her, light reflecting off of his eyes and off of a few shiny spots on his cheekbone and jaw. What's up, Bridget? I'm Tarek Longsend. Bridget looks around. There's half a dozen other people on the platform, some carrying hand torches, some carrying guns. What the fuck? Tarek raises a hand. I know, I know, it's a lot. Trust me, I didn't choose the setting for dramatic effect. What did you do to me? Tarek shrugs. You have your way of putting people to sleep? I have mine. Bridget stares at him. Oh yeah, now you're putting it together. You got a lot of my good people arrested this week, not to mention fogged out of their minds. But how fogged? Can't be sure. Hence her decision to move underground. Bridget nods. Underground? Where exactly underground? Tarek sighs, turning his head to look up at the tunnel wall to his right. Halsper was one of the first colonies on Tyr, he says. That means there was a whole level of infrastructure beneath the city that predated humans. They send in whole fleets of diagnostics and mining machines to get things ready for us meatbags. And they leave these behind. He gestures to the tunnels on either side. We call it the honeycomb. Tarek gets to his feet. Sometimes even I can't believe it's come to this. I wake up and it feels like, like everyone's overreacting. Like... If I just called up Commander Cowell and said, Hey, this is crazy, right? It could all go back to the way it was before. He fixes his eyes on Bridget again. But it can't. Bridget regards him warily. What do you want with me? Tarek's brow falls. What do I want? What do I want? I want a better life for the colonists of Tyr. I want justice for the homeless who came here for promise and ended up starving in the streets. I want leadership that cares more about good governance than appeasing their voting blocks on Earth. Is Cowell building more greenhouses? No. Is he building more sustainable housing? Absolutely not. And to add insult to injury, they install service bots at every corner store. So now we can't eat, we can't work, there's no food to buy and no money to buy it with, and the Slate Act ensures that we get 20,000 new migrants every damn season. Every one of them, a poor sap that was cluttering the streets in one of Earth's shiny, happy cities. The United Star Systems Alliance doesn't care about us. Adam Dane and Chris Cowell don't care about us. In fact, if we all die out here, it's a rather convenient tragedy for them. So we know where the galaxy's human waste been. We can either wait to be suffocated, or we can tip the damn thing over. Bridget watches Tarek from beneath a furrowed brow. You haven't answered my question, Bridget says. What have I got to do with any of that? Tarek purses his lips and regards her. Come with me. 
he says finally. And Dreyfus, a stout man to her left, steps forward, holding his hand torch aloft. Good work, Tarek says. You can get back to your patrol now. Thank you, sir, the man says, and whistles. He and the others pull on goggles and turn off their torches, effectively disappearing. There's a moment of utter darkness before a light clicks on ahead of Bridget, casting long shadows as Tarek strides down the tunnel directly in front of her. Hey! Bridget surges to her feet. She suppresses the urge to vomit. Whatever tranquilizer they hit her with was no joke. But she steadies herself and paces after him. Bridget has barely caught up to Tarek before they enter another illuminated ellipsoid, this one with a table and chairs on the platform, and wires hanging down from the ceiling all over the place. A pale woman with dark hair and glasses is sitting at one end of the table, typing on a laptop. Tarek gestures to her. This is my chief strategist, Marilyn Cosgrove. Marilyn, meet Bridget Lozano. Marilyn looks up from her work and smiles at Bridget. Hi, Bridget. We're so very glad you survived the attack on the Republic building. Yeah, me too. Bridget mugs a trollish smile. Why am I here? Tarek pulls out a chair for himself and sits down. He looks expectantly at Marilyn. Marilyn pushes up her glasses and laces her fingers in front of her. I'm sure Tarek has given you the speech. I know you're not from here, but the thing is, it's not just a sales pitch. Things are bad here, and Cowell has made it very clear that they aren't going to get better. Our numbers were already good, but frankly... She looks at Tarek, who shrugs. The fall of the Republic building is a catalyst. Viva la Révolution, as the French say. Tarek smiles grimly. Marilyn nods. We're well-liked, we're well-armed, we have the resources to pull this off, except... <sighs> the Republic guards its magical talents very carefully. Almost all the practitioners on Tier are colonial defense or regency. We need someone who can advise us on the commander's magical defenses, recruit or train new magicians, Bridget snorts in disbelief. So you're asking me to be your mage for hire? She scoffs. No. Tarek leans in. I'm asking you to be my regent. The console's video feed was turned off, but the microphone icon loomed large on the wall-mounted screen, animating aggressively as he spoke. Alondra watches the audio-reactive meter, marveling that this was the most powerful voice in the galaxy. My dear Arcanist, you've gotten yourself into quite a little pickle, haven't you? Alondra's face is tired from forcing smiles. I don't know what you mean, sir, she says. Wanted for questioning by the Regency? Rumors flying about your behavior mutiny in the face of a confiscation mission? Alondra glances at Commander Cowell, who regards her impassively. I thought this wasn't about the android, she says. It's not, the consul's voice growls. Lord Byrne seems to think it's the seventh sign of the apocalypse, but he answers to me, not the other way around. The consul sighs heavily into his mic, causing a heavy crackling sound. <sighs> The thing is, 
You've carved out a reputation for yourself, and who can dispute it? You've done some great, some really fine things. First, you single-handedly incapacitate the Virginia Mason, the man who, among other things, killed your predecessor and forced my last regent to resign disgrace. Now, you are the most visible actor in the response to this deadly act of terrorism. People trust you, and that makes you useful. Useful. Commander Cowell leans forward. Morale here is bad. There aren't that many jobs, and not much need for them, to be honest. The time is coming when there will be nothing for people to do but line up outside the Cynthia plants three times a day. They need someone to remind them that we have their best interests at heart. That this tragedy is an exception to the rule. And the rule is, we keep them safe. We know what's best. And we will get through this together. Alondra looks from Cowell to the great looming microphone icon. How do you expect me to do that? She says, trying to sound innocent, not confrontational. The consul simpers. It's really nothing to worry about. Politics as usual. We like to set up a press conference for tomorrow afternoon. The reporters can get their hee-haws out, and you can shed some light. Alondra pushes herself away from the table. Ooh, you do not want me. I, I don't know a summoning circle from a bad piece of interior decoration. Honestly, you want Norell. Sergeant Peters is a veteran, yes. The consul's voice is dismissive. But a veteran with the baggage of reclamation around her neck, and a mysterious exit from the armed forces to boot, not to mention the recent scandals following her highly dubious decision to take Miss Lozano on as her probational ward. Alondra runs her hands over her hair and inhales deeply. Okay, fine. I'll talk to the reporters. Then what? Then... Whatever you want. Head back to your ship, go home, visit your parents. Alondra lets out a mirthless snort of laughter. Or don't. She can almost hear the consul shrug. I mean, what should I do next, as first arcanist? What's my next assignment? Ah, the consul breathes moistly. Isn't that just wonderful, Commander Cowell? Wonderful, growls the commander, as if it were anything but. It's not often you see a woman of your background with such drive, such a thirst for work, really. It's inspiring, but if you ask me, you're due for a little vacation. All this excitement, jumping off of cliffs, facing down a bay in... Alondra interrupts. You're telling me to take a vacation? I'm telling you, you can do what you want. If there's an investigation you'd like to work on... Alondra begins, I'd like to keep pursuing, but the consul stampedes over her. Other than the Aphrodite Industries case, if there's some other investigation you'd like to take on, I'm more than happy to sanction it. The one thing you cannot do is interfere with the androids. That's the Regency's business now. Got it. Alondra nods. I knew you would understand. Such a smart young woman. Well, Commander, I'll let you take it from here. 
Alondra stands up. One more thing, Consul Dane. Yes? Alondra takes a breath, wondering how to begin. I was stranded for a few hours, about eight light minutes counter-orbit from Wolf System, and I nearly got run over by a dread. A what? The consul coughs. A dread. One of the small ones. I managed to destroy it with an explosive bolt, but on one of the exoskeleton plates, there was a, a picture of a red and yellow bird, like a phoenix or something, painted on it. There's a short pause. Then the consul chuckles. <laughs> Mercy me, but I thought we got the last of those damned things. Bully for you, blowing it up, though. Alandra has to stop her jaw from dropping. You're not worried? The things self-replicate, don't they? If there's one, there could be a whole hive of them in a nearby asteroid belt or something. I'll send out a bulletin. But I wouldn't worry about it, Miss Ramirez. As far as I know, you're the first person to see a dread in 20 years. Good luck tomorrow. There's a low tone as the console disconnects. Alondra sinks into her chair. Then she notices that the commander is staring at her. A phoenix, you said? Yeah. Why? Just that at the Juno Convention, there was a faction from the RIF that refused to sign the accords. They called themselves the Tsar of Tsar, the Firebirds. Alondra frowns. What happened to them? They were executed. Every one of them. The commander gets up and collects his things. By the way, after this thing tomorrow, I wouldn't stay long if I were you. Act 3 is taking over the Halsper situation. I don't consider myself a paranoid person, but... Persons of interest in cases like these have a habit of just disappearing. I don't consider myself paranoid, but I don't consider myself stupid either. He checks his armlet. They are touching down now, in fact. Good night, Arcanist Ramirez. The ship was one of the largest classes capable of grounding. 300 feet long and 60 feet high. The Blood Eagle was printed on its side in faded red paint, and it had the character of an abstract artist's sadistic reimagining of a narwhal. The machine's landing gear wheezes onto the platform at Halsper's interstellar port, with a sound like gears grinding down to dust. Captain Carrick steps forward, protecting his face from the jet exhaust, as the bay door clinks open and a coterie of heavily armed soldiers hustle onto the tarmac. From another bay, a score of engineers usher an armored car and a procession of autobikes from the ship. They are followed by Hadrian Helzer, his lieutenant officers, and two dozen others. As soon as the last boot hits the ground, the Blood Eagle's landing gear screeches as the ship lifts off again and slowly, laboriously, 
pulls away and moves off into the night. Have to park the damn thing in orbit, Hadrian yells. Surface gravity is bad for the reactor. You brought an army, Carrick shouts back. I brought a contingent. Hadrian extends his hand. Hadrian Helzer, Cell 3 Administrator. James Carrick, Regency Captain and Colonial Lordsman. Hadrian makes a face like a snarl as he peers past Carrick to the rest of the welcoming committee. Where's Commander Cowell? He says. He's en route, Carrick says. We've prepared the Allenshire Hotel for you and your men. Figured we could rendezvous there. Hadrian twists his lip and casts a glance back at the departing shape of his ship. And the Lord Regent, he says. He's... Carrick looks uncomfortable. What? He's interviewing 50HRA8. A dark look overtakes Hadrian's face. I thought I made it clear. We're happy to work with the Regency on this, but Alliance Counterterrorism is taking over the operation. Was he not informed? He, he was informed. He, uh... Carrick presses his lips together before finishing. He said, well, they aren't here yet. Where is he now? At our emergency detention facility in Walford, Gravenwell Center. Hadrian signals to one of his officers, and the men mobilize instantly, some boarding the car and bikes, others moving off the platform towards the gate on foot. We'll head there directly. If his lordship wants to play at cards, I'd like to watch him shuffle. Will you show the off-duty pods to the Allenshire? Carrick looks decidedly uncomfortable. Yes, sir, he says. Hadrian grins toothily. Hey, you're the captain here. I'm just a public servant. 237. The spoken number is stifled within the cell at Gravenwell Center. Yusuf doesn't react. His head lolls to one side, his eyes unfocused. He's handcuffed to a steel chair. Safia is handcuffed to a matching one on the opposite side of the room. Gabriel's new lieutenant, an overtly handsome young man with jet-black hair and the perpetual shadow of a beard around his jaw, slouches by the door, arms crossed and impassive. 237, Gabriel says again, watching Yusuf carefully. That's how many people were killed by your bayon. No response. Gabriel pulls off his armlet and consults the screen. I have a list of the casualties here. I'm going to read them off to you. Sandra Min was a city councilwoman, a mother of two, and a volunteer at the local resource fund. Patrick O'Hare was the owner of a zero-digital coffee house and arts sanctuary, where he was known to perform his poetry every other Thursday. Joan Tamarind was an advanced biologist working on a cure for osteoporosis. That sounds important. Bailey Crestwood was a singer and actress on tour with a production of the 22nd century classic Esamon's Star. She was filing a request for sponsored housing on behalf of her cousin, who lives here. 
Armin Isad worked at a bodega. Gabriel looks up at Yusuf. That's what you did, isn't it? Yusuf hasn't moved, but Safia is crying softly. Gabriel turns and looks over his shoulder at her. What if your sister had died trying to save you? Would you feel something then? Yusuf speaks then, his voice flat and hoarse. I didn't want anyone to die, he says. Then why are 237 people dead, Yusuf? Yusuf clutches the bandages on his side and grits his teeth. Gabriel prowls around him. You're obviously not a fucking theurge, so who gave you the urn? The door opens, and an officer clears his throat. Gabriel looks up irritably, then stands and walks over to the man. The officer whispers in his ear, then leaves. Gabriel turns back to the room, with a long-suffering air that suggests everything would be so much simpler if people would just do as he said. Our time is running short, and I'm afraid my replacement will be far less pleasant. So, once more, who performed the theurgy? Yusuf says nothing. Gabriel casts a look at Safia, then strides over to Yusuf and heaves the chair on its side, causing Yusuf to yelp as he strikes the floor, his legs sprawled awkwardly. Stop! Safia cries. He doesn't know anything, can't you see? Gabriel shrugs. You know what they say. You don't get to be space sheriff without breaking a few legs. Gabriel raises his boot over Yusuf's leg, and Safia nearly rocks her chair off its feet as she throws herself forward. I'll tell you! I'll tell you who did this! Gabriel wheels on her. Who? My sister, Safia says through tears. My sister, Kamar. Gabriel gives his lieutenant a sharp look, then advances on Safia. Where did she learn? Was it the same person who taught you? I don't, Safia stammers. No one taught me. I, I just threw rocks. I, I don't know. I didn't even think she practiced. She and Yusuf were always scornful of it. Gabriel frowns. Why do you think it was her, then? Where is she? I don't know. Safia chokes. I haven't seen her since yesterday. Gabriel points his finger at Safia. You are not giving me useful information. Once Alliance Counterterrorism gets here, I give you both about 24 hours before you disappear into black bags. Your only, I repeat, only chance depends upon me finding your sister before they do. So tell me where she is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Safia tries with all her might to think of something, but her sister was a closed book. She could hardly tell the Lord Regent of Magical Affairs to go down to Portside and interview Johns at random. Eamon's accessories. Yusuf's voice is hoarse and tinny, and strangely tremulous, in a way Safia hasn't heard since the camps. What's that? Gabriel turns to face Yusuf again. Eamon's accessories. It's a junk shop in Radcliffe. I I saw Kamar there late one night when she usually would have been working. 
He breathes for a moment, then rasps. That's all I know. The officer outside opens the door again, this time with a greater sense of urgency. Gabriel throws one more long look at Sophia, rubs his hands together, and turns to meet Hadrian Helzer's eyes as he strides into the chamber. Mr. Helzer. Regent. Hadrian casts a critical eye around the room. Well, how goes the investigation? Slowly, but maybe you'll have better luck. I never count on luck. Hadrian paces over to a corner and folds his arms, turning and resting his shoulders against the wall. Well, carry on. Gabriel frowns. Carry on. Carry on with your interrogation. Oh, thank you, but I've just finished. Hadrian smirks mirthlessly. Well then, I suppose we have nothing left to say to each other. Gabriel leaves without another word, and the rest of the Regency officers leave with him. Once outside the facility, Kylan lights a cigarette and watches Gabriel pace. You were right, Kylan says. Gabriel makes an annoyed sound, something between a click of the tongue and a growl. I'm always right, but a junk shop isn't much to go on. Kylan takes a long drag on his cigarette. You actually think Act will let him go if you find Sister Sociopath? He says. Their car pulls up, and Gabriel opens the door for Kylan, shaking his head. Oh no. They're absolutely fucked. Dawn is breaking over the city, and Penelope waits anxiously with Henry by the fuel line. This is insane, she says. There are still ads playing with my face all over them. Yeah, Henry says. But they're an afterthought. The day after a big disaster is the best chance we have. Penelope pulls the collar of the dull brown duster up and glances down the line of trucks and power carts. Some people were tired, some looked frustrated. None of them were paying attention to her, aside from the occasional leering. She and Henry had spent a miserable night shivering in each other's arms on tenement stoops, getting up and moving every thirty minutes to avoid cops, and to avoid Henry freezing to death. Penelope wasn't sure if she herself could freeze to death, but she also hadn't especially felt like trying her luck. Penelope speaks quickly under her breath to Henry. How do we get the fuel back to the ship? We're the only ones standing in this line with no way of transporting it. What was Alondra going to do? Just use my tile. Henry presses the plastic and metal bar into her hand. There's no way Dad flagged it. One of the attendants is coming down the line with the tablet. He stops in front of Penelope and whistles. Damn, now you're the last kind of person I'd expect to see waiting in the ration line. Penelope flashes a weak smile. We're visitors. Touched down outside the city and didn't realize how low we were. Can we get an Oxide 5 series cell? And do you have some way of transporting it back to our ship? Picked a hell of a time to visit, the man says. You know what kind of ship you got? Yes, it's uh, Springsteen. The man laughs. <laughs> Can't blame me for asking. Half the time, moonlighters like you don't know an M-drive from a burner. He taps at his tablet. 
I'll have to put your name into our ration list with a special dispensation for touristry. It's, uh, under my husband's name, Julian Petraeus. Penelope hands over Henry's transaction tile, trying to keep her hand from shaking. The man taps the tile against the side of his tablet, taps again, and frowns. Sorry, there's a, some kind of alert on this. Penelope forces a laugh. Oh, really? I'm a... He casts a hard look at Penelope, catches himself, and looks down again. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. Stay here. The man walks off with the tile, frowning at his tablet. Henry swears under his breath. Okay, do you know what the fuel cell looks like? We, we could find one of the drones. I, I can maybe hack it. What? It's basic stuff. It's just how I got the Arcanist cords from her autobike. Come on. Henry takes off running towards the drone bay, and Penelope has no choice but to follow. Henry! The bay wasn't even really fenced off. There were security cameras, but otherwise it was just a muddy lot behind the station. Penelope tries to jog casually, casting worried looks over her shoulder as she trails behind Henry. That's it, right? He points to a flyaway drone loaded up with a multibot and a fuel cell. It looks right. There's the Oxide Industries logo and a 5-series code printed on the cell. But Penelope can't even respond before Henry has leapt onto the machine and opened a compartment to reveal a console and keypad. What are you doing? Penelope says. It's an Iatel drone. Henry's voice is a little echoey from inside the compartment. All of these things have a physical override, but you can get around the security step using one of the developer back doors. It's this huge security gap. I think someone went to prison for it. How do you know all this? Penelope asks. Henry kicks his leg against the machine as he types furiously. I've been cooped up inside with a terminal and a robot for company for 13 years. His body stiffens for a second, and he casts an embarrassed look at her. No offense. Penelope eyes the cameras. Henry, I think this is a really bad... She doesn't even finish the sentence before the drone emits a loud chirp, then proceeds to blare a siren-like alarm, and red and yellow lights flash across the station. Henry scrambles out of the drone. Run! Penelope whips around, her hand flying to the collar of the duster. A Regency rotover whirs overhead, wheeling to a pause above them with dizzying alacrity. She raises an arm to shield her face from the wind, and watches it shimmer out of sight as she activates the coat. But before she can flee, a figure drops from the road of her. He extends his hand and speaks a word in a voice that somehow echoes between her temples. Nisuru. Penelope staggers forward, watching her invisible body begin to glow with an unearthly red light as more Regency officers, two, five, seven, drop into the bay around her, surrounding her with guns drawn. Now remember, if they ask you a question you don't know how to answer, just say, I'm not in a position to comment on that. I'm not in a position to comment on that. Alondra tests the sound of the words, trying to think of them as a life preserver, trying not to think how nervous she was. The aide smiles and brushes something off Alondra's shoulder. Perfect. And remember, 
You're a hero. Alundra walks onto the stage, feeling stiff and sweaty. The reporter's cameras were all silent, but there was still an energy in the room. Perhaps just the knowledge she was being photographed weighed on her. She briefly thinks of her parents, what they must think of this. Then it began. Yesterday, this city suffered a terrible attack, she says, carried out by radicalized non-assimilates. At midday, a 24-year-old man entered the Republic building with a powerful summoning spell. The spell created a summoning circle 80 feet in diameter and activated a theurgy that brought forth Bayan Ereshkigal. Ereshkigal killed at least 237 people and caused several million dollars worth of property damage, the extent of which is yet to be determined. The Regency is collaborating with Alliance Counterterrorism to trace the theurgy to its source and ensure that this never happens again. Rest assured, they will have more information for us soon. But now, it is time to rebuild and heal. Pause, the teleprompter reads, and Alondra takes a long, grateful breath. She feels like she's struggling to keep up. What is clear to me is that the colonies of Tyr are stronger than this. It's my first time in a wolf system, and I have already been overwhelmed by the resilience and vitality of the community here in Hosper. And we cannot let the malicious actions of a few dictate the rules of our society. We allow them to control our policies, and we allow them to control our lives, which is why it is vital for the community, now more than ever, to support the protectorate in whatever way they can. You can, excuse me. Tier is a diverse, emerging economy, and to shut out refugees is against the spirit of the Alliance. Someone in the audience groans loudly, and Alondra loses her place. She glances at Cowell, who is standing on the other side of the stage. He glowers back at her. I'll take a few questions, Alondra stammers. A man raises his hand immediately. Arcanist, are you aware that of the 8,790 new colonists that arrived last week, 94% of them were subsidized by the Slate Act? Alondra responds hesitantly. I'm aware that Tyr is a popular Slate Act destination, yes. And did you know that of those 8,000, over 30% of them are being shipped here against their will? Alondra shifts her weight. I'm sorry, I'm not sure how this relates to... I just want to say, the man interrupts, that to equate accepting refugees to supporting the Slate Act is profoundly insulting. Two security guards are making their way down the aisle towards the reporter, a pale man with the ghost of a beard. He sees them coming and raises his hands in the air. You know what? That's fine. I'm leaving. Alondra extends her hand. Wait. Let him stay. The security guards pause, but remain close, eyeing the young reporter. Alondra meets his eyes, trying to read his intent. I think, sir, that you may have mistaken me for a senator. I am the furthest thing from an expert in alliance policy, and it's not my job to be. I don't know how to change the law. I know magic. So if you have a question about magic, I'll answer it. Another reporter raises his hand. Excuse me, but isn't it inseparable in this case? 
Wasn't the summoner a reclamation case? Probably one of the many who got out of the program only to realize that there were twice as many immigrants coming in every week than there were jobs created. Twice as many? Is that true? The man nods. Well, that's... Alondra clears her throat. <clears throat> that's awful, she says. But honestly, if I learned one thing growing up during the Harlem housing riots, it's that you can't rely on the government to do what's right on its own. She catches a sharp glance from Commander Cowell and notices a flurry of activity as the room collectively scrabbles at their tablets. I just mean, she starts, but someone cuts her off. So, you agree the Republic is unreliable? Alondra nods frantically at Cowell and tries to clarify. I just meant that the governments aren't good on their own. You have to make them good. You have to hold them accountable and, and force them at times to see your... Look, the takeaway here is that there's a community in pain, and you're only going to fix that by addressing the pain, by, 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 by coming together to find a better way forward. Arcanist Ramirez. A woman from a local outlet is straining for her attention. Alondra gratefully calls on her. Yes, uh, PNT. The woman is sharp-featured and light-skinned. She glances quickly at her notes as she speaks and peers critically at Alondra over her glasses. This was a Class II hostile summoning event, which is an unusually positive outcome given the size of the Bayon and the analyzed sophistication of the source theurgy. Is that correct? Alondra looks at Cowell, who nods. That's correct, yes, she says. In your estimation, Arcanist, if it weren't for the coincidental presence of both yourself and Sergeant Peters, would the government response have been adequate? Alondra tenses. There's no such thing as adequate when it comes... I can't comment on... Would the area binding have been successful? The reporter presses. Colony defense was equipped with warding staves, Alondra begins, as was the Regency. The reporter cuts in again, but there was no standing forbiddance in place, isn't that true? Nor, nor is there an automatic counter system, both of which have supposedly been implemented successfully in New York, for example, isn't that right? Cowell makes a throat-cutting gesture at her from the far side of the stage. I'm not in any position to comment on the capabilities of colony defense, Alondra says, a little too quickly. Thank you for your time. She moves to leave, but another reporter yells after her. Aren't you currently wanted for questioning by the Regency? Is the android dangerous? Alondra grimaces, then turns, and steps back to the podium. My job is to investigate magical phenomena on behalf of the Republic, she says. And that's what I did. The Regency never informed me they had invoked the confiscation of dangerous artifacts, so I pursued my investigation. Yes, the android can do magic, but so can I. So that makes her just about as dangerous as me. A heavy hand falls on her shoulder, and she jerks violently narrowly suppressing the instinct to elbow the security guard in the throat. She allows herself to be guided out of the room, her stomach tied in knots, her mind racing. She is almost too zoned out to notice, but her attention catches on the hasty words of an aide walking quickly past her down the hall. 
Commander, the android has escaped. Alondra turns, dazedly, to see Cowell's face twist into an even more contorted version of itself. What? The Regency was holding it, sir. It was being interrogated when it created some kind of explosion. It blew a hole through the wall and took off in a fuel drone. Alondra ducks under the arm guiding her and practically leaps towards Cowell and his aide. What kind of fuel? She says. The aide starts, his mouth opening and closing uncertainly. Alondra grabs him by the shoulders. What's the make of the fuel cell? I... The aide glances at Cowell before answering. An oxide cell, I think. Why? Shit. Alondra backs away. Fuck. Cowell starts to speak. Arcanist. Alondra turns and sprints down the hall. She slams her way through the double doors of Austin Station like a bullet, dashes down the steps, and swings her leg over her government-lent autobike. It wheels into the air as the jets roar beneath her. She zooms down the main road towards the city limit, her heart pounding like a jackhammer in her chest. Once clear of traffic, Alondra kicks the pedal to the floor and speeds out of the city. She shoots under the aqueduct and up into the purplish-white hills. She's only a mile or two away from the Hyperion when she sees it rise into the air ahead of her. She pulls up on her bike, nearly peeling out, and absurdly, she finds herself leaping from her seat and running towards it, waving her arms in the air, yelling, No! 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 The Hyperion's wings extend as it picks up speed, and with a rush of air that buffets Alondra's coat, it screams overhead. Alondra screams too, her hands balled into fists as she watches her ship disappear into the sky. This was episode 5 of The Elendred. The show is written and created by Thomas Constantine Moore, produced by Janelle Yi and Toro Adeyemi, and edited by Max Bernstein. I want to thank my studio audience tonight, Janelle Yi, Chris Garber, Camille Sohit, Toro Adeyemi, and Mason Quilty. Thank you for listening. The story will continue next week. Hey there, I'm back. Thank you again so much for lending your ears and imaginations to this project. One thing I missed in the outro of the first few episodes is a very, very important thank you to Joe Mendick, who did our theme music. The man had a sock named Fernando. The show is called Thomas Tells a Story. You can follow us on Twitter at TTAS Podcast or join the community on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. If you love the show and want to keep it going, there are a few things you can do to help. Most importantly, engage with us. If you have questions or comments, reach out directly on Twitter or ask a question on the subreddit. And we'll try to address those questions on the air in a future episode. You can also leave us a review or a rating. And lastly, if you have the means, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Thomas Tells. Thank you so much. See you next week.